0: Uh, I'm really excited to be able to share this morning one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Before I start, just a little update. I'm going to be heading out to India here uh, on Wednesday. Wednesday evening, I take the overnight flight from Vancouver to Delhi. It's 14 and a half hours, which is crazy, but it's actually kind of nice that it's nonstop. So, um, always appreciate your prayers and your support. I'm going to be there for 16 days. I'm going alone this time, which is a bit strange because I usually have people traveling with me. But this time, I'm going alone. Um, I'm spending three days in the Punjab region. That's the northwest region where we have a big church planting network. And every time I go, we've 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 supported a new church planter, and I get to go visit their community. And these church plants are they're within two or three months old, and it's so encouraging to go there and to see you know 20 or 30 people gathered. And then the next year I go, they're already at 100 or 200. So uh, always encouraging what I get to be part of in Punjab. Then I'm going to spend three days in an orphanage uh, near the Himalayas and. Uh, I've been there before a couple years ago, and I'm just going back. They've got some challenges ahead of them, so I'm just going to encourage them and talk through some of the challenges. And um, we're going to be visiting some leper colonies as well, which is... uh it's always hard to do, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's encouraging to see the ministry that is taking place in those leper colonies. And then the last week, I'm going to central India, and we're being a part of some training programs for students and for pastors. And so I get a partner with, uh, with uh, actually Mennonite Brethren Mission, uh, and myself are going to be leading these conferences. So very exciting. Again, appreciate your prayers and your support as I go away. And uh, so I'll I'll miss the next couple Sundays, but excited to be able to share this morning. I've chosen to speak on one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It is in John 4. It's the woman at the well. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to grab them, open them up, because we're just going to kind of work our way through uh, this amazing story. It is a story that teaches us so much. It teaches us about who Jesus is, what he's about, uh, what he has come to offer us. It is a story that addresses so, so much of the pressing human needs that we find ourselves in. Um, this is a story that teaches us about Jesus, and we get a very clear picture about who he is. If this is the only story that we had in the Bible that taught us about Jesus, I think we'd actually get a very full picture of uh, of what he's about and, uh, and what he offers us. And it's a passage that's spoken to me really deeply as I've spent time working with the poor, learning about other cultures, interacting with other societies. Uh, Jesus really... In this, in this story, he really addresses some of the most pressing human needs and issues uh, that, that they were facing back then and that we are facing today. So I think it's going to be really practical this morning. So we're just going gonna to dive right in. So I hope you got your Bibles open. John chapter 4, verses 1 and 6. So we're going to work our way through. Let me just pray before we do that and just invite the Spirit of God to come and speak to us through his word this morning. So God, we thank you so much that we get to gather here this morning. And uh, as we open up your word, as we learn about who you are. God, draw us closer to yourself, draw us closer to faith, draw us closer to understanding uh, the depth of uh, of your love and the richness of what it means to follow you uh, as disciples of Christ. And so, God, just uh, illuminate your word this morning and speak to our hearts and our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jesus... Uh, learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone through Samaria. He had came, he, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So I want to help I want to help locate for you where this where this story takes place. I think location is actually really important for us to understand what's going on in the passage. And so I've got a, I got a picture up there. Sychar is a small village um, bay, uh, at the bottom of Mount Gerizim. So here's a picture, modern-day picture of Nablus West Bank. It's about 200,000 people today, 63 kilometers north of Jerusalem, located in the West Bank. So this is what it looks like today. Sychar would have been at the base of the mountain on the left there, and that's Mount Gerizim. On the top, there's actually ruins of the Samaritan uh, temple worship. And so that's where this event uh, takes place. We'll flip it over one more here. Okay, so there's actually a site today called Jacob's Well. And uh, there's a church, and they built a church over top of the well. It's an Eastern Orthodox church, and you can go there and you can see it today, and you can actually visit uh, the site where Jacob's well is. And you might go, how in the world do you know that this is really the place? Uh, It's actually considered one of the most authentic sites in the Holy Land because if you think about it, you can't move a well. Once it's dug... That's where it is. And many different traditions actually testify to the fact that this was the place. This is the original spot. Um, Jewish, Samaritan, Christian, and Muslim, they all say this actually was Jacob's well. And it's still standing there today. So if you actually go into the church, and we'll flip the picture there. This is what the inside of the church looks like. And It's a Greek Orthodox church. Actually just finished in 2007, so relatively new. Um, you can go down the steps, and in the steps is actually the well. And there's a, a person there putting their hand over the well. And that's Jacob's well, still standing today, church built over top of it. Uh, pretty interesting. Why do I show you this? Um, this is a real event. This is real time. This is a real place. This is a real conversation. Sometimes we read Bible stories and we think they're just moral anecdotes. Uh, but I think it's good to be reminded that this stuff actually happened. These are, these are real places and real conversations, and John is is recording a conversation, a very real conversation that Jesus had with this woman at the well. Okay, I think that's it for pictures. Oh, there might be some more. Yeah, so this is the inside of the church, and uh, you've got the stained glass windows, and you've got paintings, and as you can tell if you look closely, they're actually depicting this event in Scripture, this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan. So let's continue to read. Well, how does this conversation go? Let's read verses 9 Or verses 7, 8, and 9. I think it's up on the screen there. Perfect. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We're going we're to see how many barriers that Jesus crossed in order to have this conversation. I want to give you a little bit of insight into some of the cultural nuances that were happening at that time and just the deep prejudice so that you understand how significant this event was. Uh, Samaritans and Jews, there's an intense rivalry. Intense. They absolutely hated each other. And you probably know this, but it's, it's hard to draw a parallel between today. You might think Yankees, Red Sox. Or flames, Canucks, but hatred's probably a bit of a strong word there. Uh, the 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 closest parallel I could think of would be like North Korea, South Korea, but even that is like kind of a, at a political level. I don't think the actual people hate each other. Uh, most commoners probably wouldn't have an issue, but not so here. Jews, Samaritans, absolutely hated each other. Serious serious issues between them, and here's why. Uh, Samaria uh, came from the northern tribe of Israel. Remember in the Old Testament, you have northern Israel, and you've got Judea. Northern Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians move in, and many different people groups move in, and they assimilate with the people of northern Israel, and it becomes a mixed race and a mixed religion, and so it was very syncretistic. They mixed Judaism with all the other pagan religions, and the Jews of the south from Judea just hated this. They said, you guys have absolutely defiled the one true religion, you guys are not true Jews. And of course, Samaritans, they believe that they were, they were the true Jews. And so, major, major issues between the two of them. Samaritans rejected Jerusalem as its temple and the focal point of worship. You can imagine that's a pretty big deal because for Jews, Jerusalem and the temple, that's, that's where it all happens. The Samaritans said, nope, we reject that. We're going to build our own temple in Samaria up on Mount Gerizim, which you saw to the left. And so the Jews and Samaritans, they clashed big time. The Jewish hatred towards the Samaritans ran really, really deep. They were like traitors to them. A couple examples, Jews actually referred to the Samaritans as a herd of people, not as a nation. Uh, a widely used Jewish proverb states that a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than a swine's flesh, a pig's flesh. And, so, and if you're a Jew, pigs are like at the bottom of the totem pole. They are the most unclean, most defiled animals there are which is why they don't eat ham or bacon. And Samaritans, they're like one step lower. The ultimate insult a Jew could say to another Jew is, you are a Samaritan. So they are bitter enemies. Let me just show you a map up here. And I wish I had a pointer, but this is is what Israel looked like at the time. You have Judea to the south. You have Samaria in the middle. And then you have Galilee up there. And you know that Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee. And so doing a lot of traveling back and forth. Most good Jews, the most direct route would have been to go from Judea right through Samaria to get to Galilee. Most good Jews chose not to go that route. They would say, I'm avoiding Samaritans at all costs. I'm going to take a couple extra days longer and I'm going to go cross the Jordan River. I'm going to go into Perea. I'm going to go up and then go into Galilee so I can avoid seeing, talking, interacting with those Samaritans. I don't want to be left unclean. That's how most Jews thought. What does Jesus do? He doesn't bypass, doesn't go through the Jordan. He goes straight through Samaria and he stops at a place and he has a conversation with a Samaritan. Given the cultural background here, we already recognize this is a really, really big deal. So what kind of Samaritan does Jesus talk to? It's a woman. In that culture, it's taught that men were not allowed to greet women in public. It was an absolute disgrace for a man to speak with a woman alone. Some Jewish rabbis would actually say talking to a woman too much, even if, it was, even if she was your wife, would lead to evil. Now, I'm glad we don't live in that kind of culture today, but there was this understanding that women were more like property back then. They certainly weren't at the same status of men, and you've got to be really careful about the conversations you have with them. If a man was caught talking to a woman alone, especially at a well, it would have looked really, really bad. And I say at a well because remember where Jacob and Isaac got their wives from? well, right? They got their wives from the well. So it's kind of like that version of online dating. That's if you want to find a gal, go to the well, have a conversation. And so Jesus, he's not doing something that's all that uh, culturally acceptable. So you can understand why the Samaritan woman is surprised when Jesus asked her for water. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for water? There's deep, deep prejudice going on here. If she had given Jesus a drink, the water that she gave him would have been considered defiled and unclean because she would have actually touched the vessel that held the water that she would have given to Jesus. And he would have been considered unclean because he drank from that. That's the kind of cultural stuff that's going on here. And we deal with this today, maybe not so much in Canada, but I think we have our issues here. But in India, I see this a lot. There's caste systems in India. In some of the more strict rural settings, if you are a low caste person, you are so defiled and unclean that if you touch somebody that's of higher class, they are automatically considered unclean. It's so bad in some places that if, an, if a lower caste a person's shadow landed on a higher caste person, they would be considered unclean. So there's actually rules in some of these villages on what side of the street the low caste people can walk on so their shadow doesn't touch. The high caste. Can you imagine? Can you imagine growing up with that sense, being always told, "You are the lowest. You are unclean. You are defiled, and even your shadow is gross to us." Imagine growing up hearing that. That's why in India, so many lower caste people are coming to faith, because for the first time in their life, they hear, "Hey, you matter. You're loved. You have value." Um, there's no such thing as caste, and 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 they're coming to Christ because of this. It's amazing. In Guatemala, I think I've told this story before, but we went to a mall in Guatemala City where they have uh, guards at the door and they don't let indigenous Mayans into the mall. If you're a Mayan, you're not good enough to go into the fancy mall in Guatemala City. Can you imagine what that does to, your, to yourself when you are told you are a low-caste citizen and you're not, you're not worthy, you're not good enough to actually come into uh, uh, this social setting because you're, you, you'll defile us and you'll make us unclean? what that does to a person. See, there's social and racial barriers that are set up in society. And what does Jesus think about these barriers? He doesn't care, right? He just absolutely breaks them. And he says, I- I'm not following those barriers or those prejudices. I want nothing to do with it. Jesus doesn't see people. Uh, he doesn't see people that way. For the students that we work with in Guatemala, I've talked about this before. Um, they feel like the Samaritan woman. They feel like the low caste. They've been told that they're unclean. They're, they're defiled. They're not worthy of anything. And it's amazing when we show up there and we start telling them, hey, like we love you guys and you have value and you matter to God. And we start opening up the scriptures and we start teaching them about how God views them and how God sees them. And you see, you see the transformative power of the message of dignity and identity spoken over them. And you can see how it changes them. Because their whole life they thought they were like the Samaritan woman. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. And God says it's not true. And that's what Jesus does here. By traveling through Samaria and having this conversation with this woman, he's breaking all the barriers and saying all these cultural things that are put on you, it's not true. I see you for who you are and I care about you and I'm willing to have a conversation with you. That's why I love this passage so much. Jesus breaks down all of these these barriers and these things that we set up to to hold people back, that hold people back. Amazing. Okay, next verse, uh, verses 10 to 15. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I won't get thirsty, and I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. So Jesus has this this intense conversation with the woman and he offers her living water. And rightfully so, we see the woman is confused. She doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. Where are you going to get this living water? How do I get this? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Where do you get this from? What Jesus is doing here is what he so often does throughout the scriptures. He's speaking in metaphor and he's pointing back to the Old Testament scriptures. And so uh, thirst is, is a metaphor that's used for spiritual desire. We see that all throughout the scriptures. That's why we come across phrases in the Old Testament that says, come to me all you who are thirsty or my soul thirsts for you or be thirsty for righteousness. There's this direct connection between thirst and, and the human soul's need for God. The Bible constantly uses that as a metaphor to help us understand. Because as humans, we relate with thirst. We can't go very long without water and God is saying, that's, that's how much you need me. You need to be thirsty for me. And so Jesus is offering this woman more than literal water. He's offering her spiritual life. Let's go deeper. Anyone in that culture would have known their Bibles inside and out and when they heard the term living water, they would automatically think of some of the Old Testament passages that speak very clearly to this. So let's, let's jump into a couple of these. Jeremiah 2, 13. There's an Old Testament prophet uh, written about five or 600 years before this conversation took place with Jesus and the woman. Jeremiah speaking about the nation of Israel. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water. And they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God is, God is saying, I am the spring of living water. And I, I'm, I'm offering you water, and yet you continue to dig your own cisterns. And this is the story of the Israelites, right? We, we, we did a series on the minor prophets this summer, and we, we learned how they just continued to dig their own cisterns. And, and they weren't actually tapping into the, the water that God offers. Jeremiah 17:13, Lord. Uh, you are the hope of Israel. All who, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have for, forsaken the Lord. The spring of living water, once again, the Lord is referred to as the spring of living water. In Isaiah 12:3, in that day, he's talking about a future day, in the future, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 55, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. You will delight in the richest fare. Jesus is tapping in. He's linking himself with these Old Testament passages that talk about uh, God being the spring of living water. God being the well. Uh, God being the one that quenches the thirst. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm the one that does it. And people would have made those connections pretty quickly when he, when he uses the term uh, living water. He is the one that quenches the thirst. He is the well of salvation. He is the living water. Acceptance of this living water, it results in eternal life. Walking with Jesus, accepting him as Lord, that is what's going to truly satisfy our thirsty souls. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it's what's going to save us eternally in the end. One thing I do want to note here is that... Uh, In the Greek, in the original Greek, uh, the word living is a present tense verb. It's not future tense. It's not something that happens when you die. Sometimes we read this and go, oh, Jesus is offering us life when we die. So this whole Christian thing is about going to heaven when we die. It's actually not true. Uh, It's it's about how we're living right here and right now. And thank goodness there is eternity at the end. But what we're doing right here, right now really does matter. It's present tense verb. Okay? Uh, So the word, the Greek word is zoe. I want to put this up here. And uh, Zoe is the Greek, and it translates life. And in in the Greek lexicon, this is what what it means. To enjoy real life, to have true life, active life, blessed life, to be full of vigor, to be fresh, strong, and efficient. This is the kind of life that God offers us. This is the kind of life that Jesus is offering the Samaritan woman. I can't help but think of John 10.10. Jesus, Jesus tells the people, why have I, this is why I've come. I've come to give life and life in all of its fullness, life in abundance. That's the mission of Jesus, to give us life. The late Mike Iaconelli, one of my favorite books, Dangerous Wonder, he says this, most people believe that following Jesus is about living right, not true. Following Jesus is about living fully. It's about experiencing this life right here, right now, and in eternity, this life that God wants us to have through Christ and in Christ. I love reading Christian biographies. And so many Christian biographies talk about how the person was lost and empty and unsatisfied and looking for hope and meaning and through a journey, and everyone's story is different, finding Christ and then all of a sudden finding that which which truly satisfies. And you read this over and over again story after story, biography after biography. And I've seen this in my own friends. I've walked the journey with some of my friends who were Christians but never took it all that seriously. And they, they, had, they had this void, and they were constantly looking to fill that with you know, better education, better job, bigger house, more money, more, more travel experiences, whatever it was. And in the end, I've had friends come to me and go, what? Oh, if only I would have pursued God when I was younger. Now I've finally figured out what satisfies me, and I'm already halfway through my life. I've had friends come and tell me this. Say, Oh, I, I wish I figured this out younger. Because those other things don't satisfy. Only God can really do it. It's so why Augustine, one of the greatest theologians, writes this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Or one of my favorites, Thomas Kempis, Therefore my soul can never find full satisfaction of perfect refreshment save, God, save in God alone. This world's good things can never satisfy you, for you are not created for the enjoyment of these things. So this great gift from God, it is life. It's life through Jesus. That's the gift of God. It's water, living water that truly quenches our thirsty souls. And Jesus breaks all these barriers to have this conversation with this woman. He says, I want to offer you this. I want to offer you life, living water. Let's go back to the story. I don't know if you picked up on this, but this event actually happened at noon in the heat of the day. And the woman was alone, which is strange because women would always travel to the well Uh, together as friends. It was a communal activity, and they would do it in the cool of the day, either in the morning or in the evening, to avoid the the hot sun. And yet this woman was alone in the heat of the day, and you have to ask yourself, why? We're going to get a glimpse into this, verse 16 to 20. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband, What you've said is quite true. And the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So there it is. This woman is on man number six. And man number six isn't even her husband. And this is a really big deal. Even in our culture, if somebody was living like that, we might go, hmm, that's a little bit strange. I wonder what's going on there. But in that culture, the traditional conservative culture, that's a really big deal. Traditional Jewish rabbis would disapprove of any more than three wives in one lifetime, even if all your husbands died. They would say, at three, you need, you need to stop. That's, that's, that was kind of cultural there. This woman is a serious adulterer. A serious adulterer. And this gives us a picture into why she was alone at the well. She was an outcast even in her own society. Even in her own society that was hated and despised and rejected, she was on the outside of that. That's how they viewed her. Think about the identity barriers that are against this woman. Ethnic barriers. She's a Samaritan. Religious barriers. She's part of this, this kind of half-breed religion. Um, cultural barriers. She's a woman. Ethical barriers. She's a sinner. She's an outcast. All of these barriers that are stacked up against her. If there was to be any sort of person that Jesus ought to avoid, it is her. Her. If there's anyone not worthy of this gift from God, she is it. That's what makes this passage so amazing. Jesus throws out all of those barriers. And he sees her for who she is and she knows, he knows who, she's ta- who he's talking to. And yet he still offers her the greatest gift of all. This gift of living water. Eternal life. Understandably so, the woman is taken back. And she calls him, oh, you must be a prophet to know all these things about me. And then she quickly switches the conversation because, as you can imagine, she's uncomfortable that he knows this about her. And she wants to start talking about religion. She wants to start debating on where true religion uh, should happen. So Jesus, Jesus jumps into the conversation with her. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Um, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and, it has, and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the, the kind of worshipers the, the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So Jesus uh, points to the fact that, Worship is not about place or location. It's about spirit and it's about truth. God is spirit. This is why making an idol or an image and worshiping God through those things is actually a really a deep offense to God because he's not material. He is spiritual. He he is spirit. If we truly want to worship God, it is done through spirit. And so when we come to Christ, when we become Christians, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit, we are able to worship God uh, in spirit. And then in truth, genuine worship focuses on truth. We can be as emotionally involved and sincere about our worship, but if it's not grounded in truth, it's just not real worship. I'm probably going to go there again in a couple weeks, but I went to a place. um, It's a place called Hardwar in India, and it's on the Ganges River. And millions of Hindu people bathe in the Ganges River and believe that their sins are uh, wiped away by taking a bath in the Ganges River. And I was there, and man, they are emotional about it. They are so into it. Like, they really, really believe this. They're really sincere. But as a Christian, I don't believe it's true. I don't believe that's how sins are forgiven. And so, as emotionally charged as that worship service is, it's not based in truth. So when we come to worship, it needs to be based on truth. And what does Jesus say about himself? I am the way and the truth and the life. So here in this conversation, Jesus is saying that proper worship is not about location. It's about who you're worshiping. That's Jesus, the truth, and through whom you worship him. And that's the spirit that he's given us. The woman, she's impressed by this answer. She makes a comment about the Messiah. It's almost as if she's considering the fact, maybe Jesus is more than a prophet. Maybe, maybe he is a Messiah. Maybe he is the one that the scriptures have talked about, the promise of God who's going to come. I wonder, she says. And then Jesus makes this big statement, the climactic statement of this whole passage. He says, I, the one speaking to you, am him. I am the Messiah. I'm the one that you guys have been waiting for. I'm going to skip the next couple of verses because the disciples come back and they wonder what Jesus is doing. You can read that this afternoon if you want and pick up on what, on what happens to the Samaritan here. Verse 39 to 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever, He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman... We no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we've heard it for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So what an amazing ending to the story! This is John four, so this is like at the beginning of of Jesus' ministry, and we have one of the we have one of the first evangelists represented in this story. The Samaritan woman is, is so taken back by her encounter with Jesus that she goes back to her community and has to tell them about it. They, she has to tell them about Jesus. This, this man that, that, that knows everything that I ever did has offered me this greatest gift. That he really is the Savior of the world. And then all these other Samaritans come to believe that he is the Messiah and that he is the Savior of the world. They can't help but spread the good news. I want you to notice the woman's journey. Uh, in verse 9, she's, she uh, immediately identifies Jesus as a Jewish man. That's where it starts. And then in verse 19, she starts perceiving, okay, this guy's a prophet. He's more than just a man. He knows something. Number three, then she suspects that he's the Messiah. Okay, he's even more than a prophet. This guy may, might be really from God. And then, in, and then the next here in verse 42, along with the others in the crowd, she becomes to believe that uh, he is the Savior of the world. This amazing progression of just acknowledging that Jesus existed to being a prophet, to potentially being the Messiah, to being the savior of the world and being the savior of her life. What an amazing, amazing story. Jesus addresses her social, religious, cultural, moral barriers. He breaks through all of those things to have this conversation with her. And he says, I want to offer you what you need the most. I want to offer you Living water. I want to offer you that which, the only thing that will quench your soul. Life. Me. What an amazing story. She has this direct encounter with Jesus, and her life is radically changed. And this is still true today. It's still true today that when we encounter Jesus, he breaks through. Whatever labels that you might feel you have by family or culture or society or whatever it is. And Jesus just says, I don't care. I want to meet with you. I want to offer you that which you need the most. Life, living water. Life right here, right now. And life eternally. Present tense, future tense. That's what Jesus has come to give us. Life abundantly. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not about getting your ticket so you can go to heaven when you die. That's that's not faith. It's about following Jesus, being his disciple, experiencing this life, this life abundantly. That's why Jesus came. That's what he is about. And that's what this woman experienced. That's why she couldn't help but go and tell um, her community about this Jesus, this Savior of the world. Love this story. I love the way it portrays Jesus. Here's a God that is for us and is not against us. Here's a God that doesn't care about any of the garbage in our lives. Here's a God that just says, hey, I'm, I want to offer you what you need. It's amazing, amazing story.